scripture reading will be from 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 25 through 39. Elijah said to the prophet of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given, to, given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from the morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no, no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar and they made, that they had made. And soon Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he is asleep and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him and, pre and prepare, repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes, um, each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and dug a trench around it large enough to hold two shias of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are, are God of Israel, and I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so, the peop so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that, you're, that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, O dear, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning, uh, if you were here, then you, you know what this is all about. This is Shrek the Sheep. And uh, we talked about Shrek this morning as uh, a bad sheep. He ran away from his shepherd for about six years, was hiding out in some caves. When they found him, he was carrying about 60 pounds of wool when the average, uh, at the time of, of shearing of sheep, the average weight is about 10 pounds. So because he was away from his shepherd, he's carrying around all of this burden. Now, many of you uh, said some things about, boy, I wonder what he looked like after he had been sheared, and so decided to show you what that looked like. He is skinny, and I don't know if you can tell it or not, but he looks like he is laying on a king-size mattress. And so literally, this, uh, this sheep for six years was, was wrapped. He was enveloped sort of taco-like, gorgita-like, in, uh, in this, uh, this mattress-looking piece of wool. And uh, so this is just a little serendipity before we get into the lesson tonight. We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. 
and we're going to be looking at the text that deals with God, Elijah, Ahab, and Jezebel. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up to the passage that Lynn just read for us, and there should be an outline. Does everybody have an outline tonight? Raise your hand if you need one. Some of the fellows in the back. 100%. No, nearly. 98%. A, a plus for the guys handing out the outlines tonight. Uh, only two. There's one over here, I think. And that's... Can you raise your hand again? Oh, all of a sudden everybody's brave now and they're raising their hand. While Lynn's making his way over there uh, with the outlines, let's ask God to bless us. Father, we're so thankful to be here tonight the beauty of singing, the beauty of each other's presence, but more than anything else, the beauty of Your presence in our life. You are wonderful to us, and You are good to us in so many ways. And what we seek in this time of study, Father, is for Your Word to speak to us, to speak to us powerfully, and to change us into deeper, more profound disciples. And so give us this blessing, Father, by giving us ears that hear and eyes that see. And we ask it in the name of Jesus to be true and so. And all the church said... There's a, a scripture up on the screen, Psalm 145, verse 3. Let's say this verse together. It's up on the screen. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Let's say it again. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. The New American Standard says it this way. And His greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. You know, there really is a lot that we can know about God. We can know His basic character in parts. We can know His nature to a certain degree. We know His covenants as He has revealed them. We know about His holiness and love as we've experienced them. You know, if you read the Bible long enough and you're a disciple of Jesus long enough, walking according to the commandments of God, you are going to get to know some things about the God we worship. But as knowable as God is, there are still those unfathomables. There are those unsearchables of His being. There is a limit to what a finite human mind, a mind like mine, a mind like yours, that's finite and has some, some, some capacities to know some things and, but does not have full capacity to know the infiniteness of God, there are some things that we will never be able to comprehend about the greatness of His infinite being. I mean, who has not experienced this? About the time that you have God figured out and you think you know how God operates, the lines, the trajectory of the lines that He seems to follow, then He does something. He acts in an unfathomable, unsearchable way. And it leaves you kind of scratching your head and, and you... You, you're kind of going, huh, you know, that, that was kind of unexpected. I didn't really see that coming. And when the church gathers together and we sing, God moves in a, a mysterious way. We sort of sing it with a new dynamic, a new vitality. Because you realize that you can't put God in a box. As much as you would try to in trying to understand Him, God is always going to be bigger than our capacities to understand Him. Which brings us to one of the best known and most colorful stories in the Old Testament. It's one of the stories that we learn as children. It has three key human beings. It has uh, a fellow by the name of Ahab, a, fellow, uh, a woman by the name of Jezebel, his wife, and a fellow by the name of Elijah, a prophet of God. Now when I say the names Ahab and Jezebel, I mean there's a certain word that comes to mind. And what is it? Evil. Ahab and Jezebel are names that are synonymous with evil. 
I mean, nobody names their kids Ahab and Jezebel anymore. I mean, I, you know, you go to Sparks on Sunday morning, you're going to have a lot of Joshuas and you're going to have a lot of Jeremiah's, but no Jezebel's. Now, the key to understanding Ahab is this verse from chapter 16. The writer says he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Circle in your Bible or on that outline, write down the word. It was trivial to him to commit sins. It was a trivial thing to Ahab to disobey God. It was a trivial thing to have disdain towards the commandments of God and the holiness of God in the land of Israel. It was a trivial thing, which meant that no big deal. God said it, no big deal. Trivial thing, not something to get worried about. And Jezebel was so wicked that she sent out assassins to kill the men who served God. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 18. And Ahab, along with his king Jezebel, reigned over Israel 20 years and established idolatry in the land of Israel. They worshipped this little statue, sometimes holding uh, a lightning bolt in his hand, sometimes seated on top of a bull, but they, they worshipped Baal. In fact, Baal worship became the religion of Israel for all intents and purposes for, for a, a long period of time. And it was during this period of time that the worship of God, the recognition that God is Creator, that He is the Creator of the heavens and the earth, the Creator of human beings, that He is a merciful God that had entered into covenant with His people, that, the worship of that God is at an all-time low in their history. And 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33 says that Ahab did more to provoke God than any, any other king before him, which is not a great thing to say on your resume. And one day Elijah shows up, and Elijah is a prophet of God, and he is, he is a committed passionate prophet for the ways of God and the Word of God. And he has, as he, as he shows up on the scene and he sees all of this idolatry and, and all of this, this, this terrible worship of Baal going on, and he has what you call a, a, a Popeye moment when he sees Israel falling away from the true God that they should be worshiping. He sees all of this and he says, that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. This has gone on far enough. And I will do whatever I need to do. I will do whatever I can do to this situation to turn it around even at the cost of my own life. And so Elijah decides, you know the story, he decides to have this, this big smackdown, this, this big rumble event between God and Baal and it's staged at what mountain? What? Carmel, right? Mount Carmel. Elijah invites the 400 prophets of Asherah, the 450 prophets of Baal, to this contest. They build an altar. They pray. They, you know, the idea is to cry out to your God. And the God that sends fire down on this mountain to consume the sacrifice, He's going to be the true God. And they all say, that sounds like a pretty good idea. And the, they, they all agree to it. And the priests of Baal go first. And they start yelling out, Baal, answer us. But nothing happens. And you know, when you think about these prophets of God, you sometimes think of them as these, these, these gigantic figures of, 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 of moral dignity. And that's true. But Elijah begins to heckle. 
Elijah begins to heckle these, these, these prophets of Asherah, these prophets of Baal. He says, shout louder, he can't hear you. And so they start shouting louder. And then he begins to get, you know, he begins to get a little, a little uh, uh, personal. He says, maybe your God's in deep thought, or maybe he's busy, or maybe he's just traveling. Maybe he's out of town. He's packed his bag and left. Maybe that's why he's not hearing you right now. And then he says, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you need to shout louder because he's sleeping. He doesn't know you're down there trying to bring honor to his name. Well, at this point, it's kind of funny to listen to all of this heckling by Elijah on the sideline, and you're going, go Elijah. But then the story turns dark. These prophets of Baal began to cut themselves with a sword and with, with spears until the blood flowed, as was their custom. As was their custom. They begin to bleed all over the place. They cut themselves and slash themselves in the name of their God. And noon passes and they continue to rave and they continue to, to, to shout out to Baal, but still nothing happens. All that effort and nothing happens. It's a total bust. It's a total bust for the sight of Baal. Now it's Elijah's turn. I mean, can you imagine the tension on that mountainside when Elijah steps up to his place of sacrifice? And before he asks God to send the fire down, he gets a couple of servants to, to drench his sacrifice with water from these, these big water jars. And he does this three times. And it's enough water from these four large jars to not only soak the wood and soak the sacrifice, but to begin to fill up the trench, this, this big trench that the sacrifice was in, to fill it up with water. And Elijah calls on the name of the Lord and fire comes down and consumes the sacrifices and burns up the stones and burns up the water and burns up everything that is in that trench. And the people that are up there on the side of the mountain, and you know that uh, several years ago I, I had the opportunity to stand up there on Mount Carmel at, at, at a place where a lot of this was taking place. It's not that big of a mountain. I mean, when you're up there, you may not be standing in the square footage, but you're closer than you've ever been before. And you realize that in this place, fire came down from heaven and lit up a water-drenched sacrifice in order to bring glory to, to, to God's name. And all of these people that are up there on the side of this mountain, up on top of it, watching it, they begin to chant, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. God wins hands down. Now, if we're not careful, I think that we might miss some of the, the point of this story. You know, as a kid, as, as you're growing up and you see this all displayed out on the flannel, the flannel graph, uh, you, you know, you get the idea that 1 Kings 18 may be about my dad can beat up your dad. It's that kind of a story. But we have to think about how Elijah sets this thing up and why God decided to send the fire. And the key is in Elijah's prayer. Let me read it to you again. Verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. You know what the key to that prayer is? It's the words, so that. So these people will know that you are the only God. So these people will know that you are the God of all history and you're turning their hearts back to you again. 
Elijah did not set this thing up for his own glory, but for God's glory, aching to see the people leave their idols and return to God. And you know what the stakes were? What do you think would have happened to Elijah had the fire not come down? Elijah surely would have been killed. Now, I think there's something to discern here about what God wants to do with His power. And the first one is this. God works in the lives of people who want to see His name praised. There is something about how God looks at the hearts and the minds and the work of people who want to see His name praised that allows His power at times to flow through them in some astounding ways. God works in the lives of people who work to see other people freed up from false gods and and freed up from the emptiness of, of no God at all in their life. He works in the lives of people who put His purposes in front of their own. And He's done this throughout all of history. Question. When we think about our prayers in light of the story, is that so that theme a part of our prayers? So that these people might be turned back to you. So that these people will discern that you are the God above God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. You know, when you get down to the busyness of prayer and and the business of prayer and asking God to do something great, is it for your name or my name or His name? You know, true confession time. You know, there's a lot of times that if I'm not careful, the path that my prayers can take becomes prayers about my life and my wishes and my stuff and that I want God to arrange it all. If I'm not careful. It's not so that these people will know that you are the one true God. Reminded of this verse from James chapter 4 and verse 3 that says, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You ask uh, that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. You know, at the end of the day, God does discern our prayers and He does discern the motives of our prayers, the personal motives of our prayers. Here is Elijah at, at great danger to himself, at great cost to himself, he wants to get the people to turn their back, to turn their hearts back to God. But what about us? You know, change my spouse, oh God. Fix my boss, oh God. Get me out of this mess, oh God. Resurrect the Dallas Cowboys, oh God. When you get right down to it, have you analyzed your so these people might know that you're God? Have you, have you analyzed the so these statements of your prayer life? Will it glorify God around you and around the world? Will it better establish the kingdom of God on earth if your prayer is answered? Well, back to First Kings. Jezebel hears about the destruction of all of her prophets, 850 prophets of the Asherah and the Baal, and she is livid. And she basically says in verse 2 of 1 Kings chapter 19, she says, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of theirs. It's, it's sort of the old mobster sentiment. I'm going to kill you, and then I'm going to hurt you really badly. Question. Should that threat have any traction with a prophet like Elijah who has witnessed a miracle, and not just any miracle, 
but a miracle that is going to be talked about until the end of time. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, we're still talking about it and mesmerized by this story. Should a, a, a prophet of God who has seen that kind of a miracle, should that threat by Jezebel have any traction with a, with a prophet like this? Should it phase him? Well, you wouldn't think so. But it does phase him greatly. And this powerhouse of a prophet falls into kind of a, a, a spiritual funk, a, a spiritual depression. And he hears about this threat, and he says in verse 4, after he comes to a broom bush, he sits down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. How does a threat from a pagan middle-aged woman have any traction with him after all he has just seen and been a, a part of? But it does. Now, if you're God, or you think that you, you know God's mind, you would think that after seeing the greatness of that fire come down on that mountain and, and just destroy that, that drenched sacrifice, you would think that he would get frustrated with Elijah and he would sit him down in front of a, you know, a monitor and he would show him an instant replay in slow motion of everything that just happened and said, are you out of your mind? Get back in the game. You know, a lot of times, you, you know, we think of God like an old gunnery sergeant or, or an, a football coach. I remember uh, when, when I was in the ninth grade, we were getting ready for a wrestling tournament. And, uh, you know, you, when, you re when you're at wrestling practice, a lot of times you want to wrestle a guy that's the same size as you. When you get to the tournament, not everybody goes, so you have to wrestle with whoever's there. I'm wrestling with a guy that's about three weight classes heavier than me, gets me in a headlock, throws me, my foot spins, and I have this spiral break right down. That's why I kind of stand like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. This leg is longer than the other one because of that break. And so I knew it sounded like a 22 going off. I, I, I say, Coach, my leg is broken. What did my coach say? It's not broken. Get up and get back to wrestling. I said, Coach, I'm serious. I, this leg's not moving. And he said, it's probably just bruised. Get up and start wrestling again. And finally, the other guys in the, on the wrestling mat said, you know what, it's broken, coach. And so the coach comes up, and sure enough, it's broken. A lot of times we think that God's going to grab you like that, and he's going to shake you, and he's going to say, you need to get back into the game. And you would think that God here would shake Elijah by the collar and tell him to buck up. But do you remember what happens? God sends an angel to Elijah, and you remember, what does the, what does the angel do? He makes a little lunch. He makes a little lunch. Not once, but twice. He makes a little bit of lunch for Elijah. And it works. Elijah eats it. He goes back to sleep. He wakes up. There's a little bit. It's sort of first lunch and second lunch. And then there's a little bounce, and Elijah steps after that. The God who sends fire is also the God that makes a little bit of lunch. Your ways are unsearchable. And he's going to protect Elijah from Jezebel. Thinking about this, I can't help but remember that passage out of Romans chapter 2. Paul's writing about the way that God works with people, trying to bring them back to him. And he says, do you show contempt 
for the riches of His kindness, His forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. That God's kindness is to bring about a changed life. You know, one of the things that I think I've discovered about God is that He uses a lot of different ways, depending on the person, to try to get us back to true north. Which leads to the next thing. God has tremendous patience with and unlimited resources to help His people do His will. God has tremendous patience with and unlimited resources to help His people do His will. You know, one last point from this story. In, 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 the, last, in, in the same chapter... God tells Elijah to go and to stand on the, on, the, on the side of another mountain. And then he's going to reveal himself to Elijah. And I don't know what Elijah is thinking, but you can only imagine what might be going through his mind when he's been told, God wants you, know, you to stand on the side of the mountain because God is going to reveal himself to you. You know, it would be like you know, if, if God showed up one day and said, Mark, I want you to go down to the Alamo and I want you to stand in front of it because I'm going to reveal myself to you. Now, I'm not sure what I'm going to expect, but I'm going to expect something that's going to change my life completely. I mean, I would go. And Elijah does go, and a couple of amazing things happen. There's this wind that comes and blows away part of the mountain. I mean, there's a strong wind, but God was not in the wind. And an earthquake comes and shakes that mountain and tears it up, but God was not in the earthquake. And the fire comes, but God is not in the fire. And then there is a whisper. And God is in the whisper. There is this whisper, and Elijah heard it. The still, small voice of God. Do you think that this is the way that you make an impression on a prophet with a faltering faith? You wouldn't think so. But that's what God gives him. And what is God doing with that? Probably lots of things, but primarily I think He's connecting to Elijah in a way that Elijah needs it. He is establishing and strengthening his relationship with Elijah. He is speaking to Elijah in a voice that Elijah is hearing clearly. And you know what he does? He pulls his hood over his face. You know, God is not always blowing your wits away by His, 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 his mighty power, by His mightiness, by His almightiness. But connecting in ways that remind you that as you pray, so that these people might know that you're God. And find yourself in the travail of the valley, feeling threatened, that He's there. That He's there beside you everywhere. God reinforces the relationship to remind us that He's always, always there. You know, ministry is, is, is never easy. It's not without its dangers. And sometimes you can get very discouraged in ministry. Sometimes you can have this tremendous success. And in both of these, whether it's, 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 it's feeling like a failure or this tremendous success... There is the great danger, the great temptation that you're going to lose sight of God. And what you have to really yearn for is that still small voice of God reminding you that He shows up, that He's never going to leave you. Never is He going to ever, ever, ever forsake you. When I, when I contemplate and meditate on this story, you know what I become? A fired up Christian. <laughs> 
a fired-up disciple of Jesus of Nazareth because of the truth of, of, of how God is revealed in the story. Elijah hears the voice, and Elijah goes out, and Elijah does incredible things for the kingdom of God because of the unsurgeable, unfathomable ways of God in connecting to His people. Maybe you've been struggling recently with your own prayer life. Maybe you've been struggling recently with a faith that is faltering a little bit and you feel tired and you're yearning for that still small voice of God reminding you that He is there with you daily. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. This church, part of the reason that this church exists is not just to glorify God and, and, and for people to grow in their understanding of discipleship, but to be there for each other and to pray for each other. And at times to be that ministering hand of God to people who need a tangible, a tangible encouragement, a tangible voice that says to them, God is with you and God will take care of you and I'm praying for you and here's my encouragement for you and here's my fellowship with you and here's my solidarity with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. That's one of the reasons why this church exists is to help us to be reminded that God is always, always on a daily basis connecting to us as He calls us to do His will, to glorify His name, and to help in His kingdom mission to turn people's hearts back to Him and to glorify Him and to hear people in this community say, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is some of our shepherds are going to be down front. If we can minister to you in any way, come down and talk to them. Let us.